if you have your bulletin, Sarasota bulletin insert, you can take out. We're going to cover uh, a, one of the final passages in the Gospels about the life of Christ. You have your Bibles or the Bible app, you can turn to John 21. Um, if you're using the Version app, you can actually go to events and find Friendship Church, which should pop up pretty quickly, and you can follow along there as well. Uh, but we are wrapping up. This is, uh, we only have two more sermons in this series. Um, the final steps where we have traced the life of Christ chronologically, and we are ending uh, with the end of his ministry here. Um, so he's already resurrected from the dead. Next week, we'll cover the Great Commission. And the last week in January, we will cover the uh, Ascension. What does the Ascension of Christ mean for us? Probably one of the things about Jesus that we really don't talk about very much. We talk about his, his death and his life and his teachings, but we really don't talk about his Ascension very much and what that means for us. So we're going to cover that. Um, and so today is part six, 15, 16. I've lost track. 16 of our sermon series, Restoring Peter, is the sermon title today. In my household, everyone is fully aware of what we call the Cadbury egg incident of 2019. All we have to do is say that specific phrase, and everyone goes, ah, yes, a day that will live in infamy. Now, it's not as infamous as the Hindenburg crash, but it's a day of treachery. It was a day of betrayal. It was a day of lies and more lies upon lies to cover up those lies. It's a day that the Frazier family will never forget. Now, if you're not familiar with Cadbury eggs, they are the most amazing thing on this planet. All right? If you disagree, fight me. They only hit the shelves around Easter. If you're diabetic, I am sorry. You are missing out of probably a lot of things. I'm sorry. Um, but they only hit the shelves around Easter, which makes them elusive and even more desirable. When they go on sale, people like me stockpile them. They're shaped like an egg. If you don't know what they are, Cadbury eggs, they're shaped like an egg. And the outer shell is chocolate. Inside the Cadbury egg is this sugary, delicious goo that's made to look like the inside of a real egg. It, there's white and there's a little bit of yellow food coloring. It's heavenly, which is why it only comes out at Easter. It's to remind you of the sweetness of salvation. At least that's what I tell myself when I'm on my seventh one. One of my children had bought several Cadbury eggs. And that same child told me that they had bought one specifically for me. Which made them my favorite child at that moment. I was grateful, but I wasn't ready to eat it just yet. So I put it in a candy dish in our kitchen. Each time I came to the kitchen, I either didn't notice it was still there or I bypassed it and, and, and I bypassed it and grabbed a different snack. 
or I just wasn't in the mood to eat it at the time. You got to be in the mood to eat a Cadbury egg. I mean, it's it's a commitment because it comes with a tall glass of milk required. You you just can't pop it in your mouth, and you know it's 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 amazing. But it was mine, and everybody in the house knew it was mine, and I was saving it for later. And I don't have to say when. I just was say I'm not eating it right now. I'll save it for later. Well, probably a couple weeks went by and suddenly the Cadbury egg was gone. I was shocked. Everybody in the house knew that it was mine. Who would dare do such a thing? Which one of the people in my own house would betray me like this? Each person in the house was questioned at length. This is not a joke. I, uh, uh, there may or may not have been a polygraph involved. I needed to get to the bottom of this treachery. Easter was over. The Cadbury eggs were all off the shelves. There was no replacing it. Each person in the house swore to me their allegiance and their innocence but someone had betrayed my trust and then they lied to my face to cover it up through my intense questioning i discovered who the guilty party was but i wanted them to confess yet this person maintained their innocence one day many many months later all of a sudden in a moment of unrelenting personal guilt, this individual confessed. To which everybody in the house replied, We knew that you did it! Why did you think we didn't already know? Once the confession was made, the process of forgiveness and restoration could begin. And while this is a true but humorous example, you may have your own example of when someone betrayed you, when someone swore they did not do something that you knew that they did, when they lied to cover their tracks, and how difficult they made reconciliation by maintaining their lie or their distance from you. In the Bible, we have an example of restoration that was absolutely necessary for the future of a single person and the souls that he would impact for eternity. So I'm going to set the stage for you as we get into John chapter 21. At the end of John's gospel is a series of stories. It's actually three stories that demonstrate the heart of Jesus Christ towards one individual. The angel that announced Christ's resurrection, who's Matthew 28, 7, want to check my work. Uh, the angel that announced the resurrection of Jesus Christ told the disciples he would meet them in Galilee. But the disciples were in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. So think of like North Texas and South Texas. All right. The disciples were in South Texas, but the angel said, Jesus will meet you in North Texas. 
So the disciples were still in Judea on Resurrection Sunday when Jesus walked through the wall and saw them and talked to them. And then eight days later, when Jesus appeared to the disciples again with Thomas in the room, which we covered last week, eight days later, the disciples are still in Jerusalem. They're still in Judea. So some time passes between the events that end John 20, when Jesus appears to Thomas and and those disciples, and the beginning of John 21, when the disciples are now in Galilee. They've finally gone up to North Texas, okay? And so probably a week or two has gone by between the events of those two chapters. And John gives us several stories, and these three stories, they all revolve around Peter. Why? Because Peter shot his mouth off that he would die in the place of Jesus, and yet he denied him three times. So why was this hot-headed, loud-mouthed, impulsive, yet cowardly disciple so important to Jesus? For the same reason that you and I are important to Jesus. The author of the book that's out in the foyer, and if you haven't grabbed a copy, please do so. It's totally free. It's called Gentle and Lowly. And as I said last week, I don't agree with everything the author says, but I think there's a lot of really good stuff in the book. And so you just kind of, you know, with everything else, eat the meat, spit out the bone, fat, whatever you want to use for your analogy. But the author of that book, he wrote that Christ's heart is drawn to the brokenness that's in us. That his hands long to clean off the spiritual filth that we manage to cover ourselves with. That he doesn't shirk back. He does not shy away from our sin Our sin is the very thing that draws his heart to us because he understands our frailty. He understands our failures. He understands our temptations and our humanity. And he can relate better than anyone to the frailty of our humanity because he was human too. He knows our struggles. He wants us to acknowledge our limitations and allow him to lift our heads from the shame that we feel. Now, Jesus took such an occasion to show his heart to a hurting and broken disciple. Seven disciples went to Galilee, and we have no idea where the other four were. Judas, obviously, had killed himself prior to the crucifixion. Seven were in Galilee, and four were MIA. Peter announced to the other six disciples with him, I'm going fishing. And so this, all seven of them went. Why not? It was familiar to them. Peter was now back home in Galilee, probably in Capernaum, which is where his fishing business was. He had bills to pay. He had mouths to feed. And he went back to what he was accustomed to. Now, back when Jesus appeared to them on Resurrection Sunday, he said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. But that was it. He didn't tell them where he was sending them, what they would do when they got there, or what to expect next. Not yet. What becomes clear when you read the Gospels is that Jesus did not spend the full 40 days after his resurrection with these 11 disciples. 
the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, he is appearing and disappearing to the disciples. He's coming and going, and they don't know where he is, when he's going to show up. He just pops up randomly, and so they think. And so Peter and six others, they go fishing this night. This is John chapter 21. Peter and six of the other disciples, they go fishing. And they fish at night uh, so that they can take the fish fresh to the market first thing in the morning. So most of these seven men were fishermen by trade. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to fish. They knew how to provide for their families. They knew where the great fishing spots were in the Sea of Galilee. That night, however, they had fished all night long and they had caught nothing. The sun began to peak over the horizon as they sat in the boat, no doubt discouraged, frustrated, exhausted, and hungry. Maybe they had lost their touch. So they started rowing back to shore when in the distance they see a figure on the beach. Scripture says about 100 yards away. So you're talking about the length of a football field. And the man on the beach called out to them and he said, Kids, did you catch any fish? Now these experienced fishermen probably did not appreciate being called kids. Or being reminded of their night-long failure to catch absolutely no fish. So they simply replied, No. Well, the man from the beach spoke up again, and he said, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. Now, this had to spark a bit of a memory for Peter and Andrew and James and John, because a man had said that to them before, and they hauled in enough fish that it took another boat, the boat with James and John in it, to drag the catch to shore even with their nets breaking to hold in this massive catch. So Peter probably thought, that's so weird. That's happened before. It worked for us the last time. Let's do it again. Let's try it again. And so when they cast their nets on the right side of the boat and they pulled their nets in, it contained such a massive haul of fish, they could not bring it into the boat. And all of a sudden, John, who's in the boat with them, the youngest disciple, he pointed to the shore and he yelled, It's the Lord! When Peter heard this, he jumped in the water and he swam the hundred yards to the shore. The six disciples that were left in the boat had the task of dragging the net full of fish back to the shore. And when they got to the shore, Jesus had a charcoal fire going on the beach with fish and bread cooking on the fire. He fed the fishermen breakfast that morning. And it had to be eerily quiet around the fire. While Jesus had already appeared to them at least twice since his resurrection, Jesus was about to have a conversation that needed to take place. And to heighten the suspense and the drama of the moment, Jesus did it around a charcoal fire. Now, this would have sparked immediate emotional reaction in Peter because it was around a charcoal fire, according to the Gospels, just like this, the night of Jesus' arrest, 
And Peter denied knowing who Jesus was. His responses to the questions asked the night of Jesus' arrest were, I don't know what you mean. I don't know him, and I don't know the man, adding a curse upon himself for emphasis. Now, a couple weeks later, on the beach, Jesus sat Peter down at a charcoal fire again, eating fish and bread in silence. And it had to be a really tense moment on the beach. So let's pick up the story of John 21. 15 through 17. It says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, sometimes we read, we're reading scripture, we're reading the Bible, and we know there's got to be more to the story than what we're reading there in the English, but we can't figure out what it is. This is one of those instances. By a charcoal fire, Peter denied Jesus Christ three times. By a charcoal fire, possibly the same spot that Peter met Jesus for the first time, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. And three times, Peter responded by saying yes. So let's dig a little deeper into the passage. One, one thing I'll just throw out there and let you know is that in the Gospels, one author wrote that Jesus asked over 300 questions to people, but he only answered two. So parents, when your child asks you a question and you answer their question with a question, you could not be more like Jesus Christ than in that very moment. What do you think you should do? Do you think the trash should go out today? Do you think your laundry needs to be brought upstairs so we can wash it? That's Jesus right there. Answering a question with a question. <laughs> so there's two things we want to notice about Jesus' first question. Number one, and, and if you've got your, your uh, insert, you can fill in some blanks. He asked Peter if he had agape love for him. He asked Peter if he had agape love for him. I don't know if we've got the slide for that for that one. There we go. Um, just so you can spell it. Agape is a Greek word, and it usually is understood as unconditional love. Love without strings attached. Love without limits. So Jesus was, in essence, asking, Peter, do you love me the way God loves? Do you love me with such self-sacrifice? that you put your own interests last. Do you love me without conditions? Do you love me without requirements? He asked Peter if he had agape love for him. And the second thing we notice in Jesus' first question is he asked if Peter loved him more than these. Peter was always the one to speak up, 
to declare his undying loyalty and affection to Jesus Christ. Peter was often the spokesperson for the group. He declared that Jesus was the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter uh, declared that Jesus would never suffer, that he was willing to die in Jesus's place. He said that he would never deny him. He said that he would gladly go to his death so that Jesus did not have to suffer. And yet, when the heat got turned up to a boiling point the night of Christ's arrest, Peter did exactly what Jesus predicted Peter would do. So Jesus' question is warranted. Do you truly love me more than these other disciples do? Or was that just talk? Now, two things for us to notice about Peter's response. Number one, he affirmed his love for Jesus. Peter affirmed his love for Jesus. Peter said he did love Jesus more than these other disciples did. And at first glance, that seems really arrogant to respond that way. Nobody loves you, Jesus, more than I do. These guys are chumps. They don't love you nearly as much as I do. But we've got to remember something about Peter's very first meeting with Jesus that helps us understand why Peter would say such a thing. And it was on this, most likely this spot, this same beach in Capernaum. And it happened in Luke chapter 5. And I referenced it earlier, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they've been fishing all night. They caught nothing. Jesus, the carpenter, not a fisherman, he told them to go out into the deep, the Sea of Galilee. You don't go out into the deep because that's really far away from the shore. Storms have a habit of rising up and you can't get back to the beach in time. It's a scary and dangerous place to be. But he told them, go out to the deep and fish and you'll catch some fish. Peter objected. They had been fishing all night, hadn't caught a thing. They're already on the shore cleaning their nets uh, so that they don't rot. They're done for the day. They've clocked in a good 10, 12 hours of fishing and caught nothing. But Peter said, at your command, at your word, I'll do it. If you know something that I don't, I'll do it. And when they experienced this first miraculous catch of fish, Peter threw himself down at the feet of Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. We don't know what kind of past Peter had. But he knew he was not worthy to be in the presence of the Messiah. He knew that it would, it would detract the Messiah's reputation to be seen with such a sinful man as Peter. And Jesus had said in Luke chapter 7 that those who are forgiven little love little, but those who are forgiven much love much. Peter knew the depth of his sins. So he felt like his love for Jesus was deeper than the love that the other disciples had for Christ. To Peter, Jesus saw all the filthiness in his heart and he loved him anyway. In light of your sins and in the presence of that kind of love, you're going to think that you love Jesus just a little bit more than anybody else does because of what he's done for you. The second thing we see is John's choice of words in Peter's response. Jesus asked Peter, do you have agape love for me? And number two, Peter replied that he had 
phileo love for Jesus. While Jesus were undoubtedly speaking Hebrew or Aramaic, not speaking Greek, and these are Greek terms, agape and phileo, they're Greek terms, there are similar terms in Hebrew that correlate to these Greek words, and they capture the shades of meaning. Now, to be fair, some commentators downplay this nuance. They say that um, it's a uniqueness that's not that important. However, these same commentators will also point out a uniqueness of the same kind when they feel like it is important. I kind of feel like it is important. I feel like that the Bible doesn't make a mistake and that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers to use what they used to say what God wanted them to say. And so I'm not going to spend too much time on this other than to say that the use of phileo is important. It means brotherly love. The use of phileo is important because it's not agape. Agape means unconditional love, and phileo means brotherly love. We'll get into the nature of Jesus' responses to Peter in just a minute. So Jesus asked, Peter, do you have agape love for me? And Peter replied, Lord, I have phileo love. I have brotherly love for you. The second time Jesus asked Peter, he said, Peter, do you have agape love for me? And Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I have phileo love, brotherly love for you. That was the second round. The third time Jesus changed his question. Though you don't see it in English, you see it in the Greek. Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you have phileo love for me? Do you have brotherly love for me? And Peter is grieved at this third question. He's offended. He's distressed. He's saddened. Possibly shame began to rise up inside of him. Three times he denied knowing Christ, and now three times he's been asked if he even loves Christ. I think in this moment, Peter probably looked up with tears in his eyes, knowing his failure, knowing his sins, and had the grace of Christ explode in his heart. He betrayed Jesus by a charcoal fire. Now he is being restored by Christ by a charcoal fire. Three times he denied him. Three times He's asked if he even loves him, and three times he confirms that he does. It must have been a beautiful scene. Jesus longed for Peter to see what, uh, to see in himself what Jesus already knew was there, and he longs the same. He longs for the same in you. If you could see past your sin, if you could see past your failures, past your limitations and see what Christ sees in you, what you can accomplish, not in your own power, but in his power, you would forever be changed. When the twins were little, when Samuel and Gideon were little, I would hold them. and They would look up at me with these massive eyes. I'm like, you're going to have to grow into them. They're really, really big. These huge, beautiful clean, pure, innocent eyes. And their eyes were so pure that I could actually see my reflection in them. I think that's what Christ longs for us. 
He wants us to live a pure and holy life so that when he looks at us, he sees his own reflection, that we are working towards being as Christ-like as possible. Peter, around the campfire, looking into the compassionate eyes of Jesus, feels the full weight of forgiveness and restoration. Notice that when Peter responded to Jesus with a different kind of love than what Jesus asked, Jesus asked, do you have agape love? And Peter said, I have phileo love. It didn't disturb Jesus. Jesus didn't skip a beat. Jesus didn't say, whoa, 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 that's not what I asked you. He just focused on the mission that he had for Peter. Jesus told Peter four things to do. The first three are all very closely related. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. Now, Peter was a fisherman when Jesus met him. He was not a shepherd. But Christ has a way of taking what we thought we were going to do with our lives and changing things to make our lives so much better. The vast majority of pastors that I know did not want to be pastors, me included. I did not want to be a pastor. My dad was a pastor. I saw the difficulties it raised in his, uh, in his marriage, in his parenting style, the stress that he came home with as a senior pastor. And I thought, I'll just go do something else. But the Lord has a way of taking what we think we want to do with our lives and go, okay, if you're going to surrender to me, though, it's not holding anything back. You have to hold fully and wholly surrender to me. And so Jesus gave Peter a new mission. And he used this shepherding analogy to convey Peter's new spiritual calling. He said, feed my lambs. Lambs, obviously, are baby sheep. They're, in this analogy, young Christians. And sheep are older sheep, mature Christians, mature believers. So young believers and mature believers, they all need to be fed by a good shepherd that cares for them. It doesn't do any good to only feed the young ones and let the mature ones starve. It doesn't do any good to feed only the mature believers and let the young believers, the new believers, starve. The spiritual shepherd has to do the best they can to feed all the sheep. Whatever sheep God brings in, the spiritual shepherd has to feed him. And so we'll actually get a little bit deeper into this in our Wednesday night series in Psalm 23. So I'm not going to give any spoilers to this here. But possibly Jesus, when he said this to Peter, Feed, tend, uh, feed my lambs, tend to my sheep, feed my sheep. He possibly motioned to the boat. His days of being a fisherman were over. Christ didn't want, did not want him to accept the call of God in his life and then think, well, if this doesn't work out, if preaching the gospel, if, if following Christ and being a shepherd doesn't work out, at least I've got this to fall back on. I, I met and talked with several people when I was at Bible college and they they and so we were like, what what degree are you going to get? What what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm focusing on uh, pastoral ministry, but I'm going to get my degree in business in case that doesn't work out. You got to have a plan B. 
at Bible college. And I'm like, I don't want to be in your church. If you have an out, if you're not wholly committed to what God has called you to do, and you've got a backup plan that you think is better than plan A, no, no. If you are faithful to the call of God, God will make provision for you. You don't need a plan B when you put your life in God's hands. Because if you have a plan B, I don't know who this is going to hit today, but if you've got a plan B because you think that the that God is not dependable enough for you to count on him, that that he can't fully be trusted with your life, then you need to start this sermon series all the way from the beginning and go through it again. Because Jesus Christ will take you to the place. He will put the finger, he will put his finger in the one thing you're not willing to give up. And he'll say, that needs to go if you're going to follow me. He did it with the rich young ruler. All these commands I've kept from my youth. What else do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus says, you're too rich and you're greedy. So sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and then you can come follow me. And he went away greatly distressed because he was rich. Now, being rich isn't a sin, but being greedy is a sin. And his issue was greed. He was acquiring everything for himself, and he was not letting it go. He was not using his wealth and his, his blessings that God had given him to bless other people. And so he was acquiring instead of distributing. And he had a greedy heart. And Jesus cut through all the noise and he put his finger on the one thing that he needed to deal with. Now, God's plan will most certainly not look like what you thought it would look like. But you don't need a fallback in case God's will doesn't work out. You don't. The two times that Peter was an outstanding fisherman were the two times that Jesus enabled the miraculous catch of fish. Other than that, kind of seems like Peter was a mediocre fisherman at best. Because the two times that Jesus provided the miracle, he provided the miracle because Peter had been out all night as a fisherman. That's his job, and he's caught nothing. He didn't even catch enough fish for breakfast. And so Peter might have remembered Jesus' metaphors Jesus used a lot of metaphors and analogies and connections with current, uh, the way people live their lives. And so Jesus talking to people who are fishermen and carpenters and farmers, Luke 9, 62, he used a farming analogy. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When you surrender your life to Jesus Christ and you accept his desire for your life, and then constantly look over your shoulder at all the worldly things you're missing out on, Jesus says, you don't even deserve the kingdom. When you think about all that you're missing, you're forgetting about all that you've gained. Jesus said in John 15, 5, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Without me, disconnected from me, when you're constantly trying to do things in your own strength, you will find that you actually can't do anything. Nothing that's long-lasting, nothing that's fruitful, nothing that's worthwhile. 
if you keep asking yourself, why do I keep getting in these situations? Maybe it's because you are trying to do things apart from God. There's no point in going back to fishing when God has called you to be a shepherd. I'll ask our worship team to come up. Would you stand with me this morning? John's gospel ends with a very unusual story. You see, Jesus prophesied that Peter would be led to his death. He was really given the really the motivational speech that day. He was like, Peter, you're going to be led to your death. You're going to be the old man. You used to go where you wanted to go, and now you won't. You're going to be led to your own death and go where you don't want to go. And so Jesus is prophesying Peter's martyrdom. And again, I love how honest the Bible is because Peter gives us another glimpse into his personality as if we haven't had enough. Peter turns to John and he says, what about him? What about him? You know, let's just make sure things are fair. If I have to go to my death, then surely everybody here is going to have to pay the same price. And Jesus replied with two words that he uh, replies, the same two words that he says to us. Two words that encompass all of God's expectations from you. Two words that encapsulate the requirements of your total surrender to his will, his call, and his way. Those two words, very simple, follow me. If you're busy looking forward and following the leader, you're not worried about what's going on behind you. You're you're not constantly looking over your shoulder at what might have been. You're not concerned with anything in your peripheral. When you're looking forward at the Savior and following Him, all the other things fall into their correct place. Sometimes if you if you see a movie, you might see a character and they have to walk a treacherous and difficult, dangerous road. And before they walk this difficult path, they find someone who knows the path well. I've never heard of anyone who climbed Mount Everest solo and was successful. If you want to climb Everest, you get a Sherpa. You find someone who knows the way. You find someone who knows the dangerous places to avoid. And so in a movie, you may, you may find someone and they, and they say, look, we're going to go this dangerous path. Follow me closely. Walk where I walk. Step where I step. And if you do, you'll be safe. Because I walked this road before. And I know it well. And you will make it to the other side if you stay step in step with me. Christ offers us the exact same assurance. He's walked this road before. He knows its temptations. He sees its pitfalls and its obstacles. All we have to do is stay in step with him, to walk where he walks, to step where he steps. He didn't command us to lead him. He commanded us to follow him. And to be fair, sometimes... We like to lead Jesus. We like to say, come on, Jesus. You're holding me back. 
You're walking a little slow. Hurry it up. I got places to be. Football starts in 10 minutes. Let's go, Jesus. We like to lead Jesus and tell him, this is when things need to happen so that this can happen, so that this can happen, so that this can happen. And we forget that Jesus never told Peter, he never told any of the disciples, lead me. He said, follow me. And if we follow him, we will make it to the other side. It's a simple phrase, follow me. But you never know the full weight of it until you start doing it. Today, I challenge you to make sure you are not leading him, but following him. That you're submitted to his lordship in your life. That you learn about his life, you learn about his requirements, you learn about his way. And then you do it. You follow him and you see where it takes you. See what he does in you and through you as you follow him. Because people will always disappoint you. They'll let you down. They'll always fail you, but God will never fail. One of the songs that, that we, we, uh, have, we have worship playing pretty much all day, every day in our house. And one of the lines from that is, he never makes a promise he doesn't keep. Man, what a wonderful, wonderful sentence. He never makes a promise he doesn't keep. If there's one thing that you can build your life on, it is Jesus Christ. Would you worship with us this morning as we sing a final song and then we'll come together and pray.